I don't know whether you've realised this, but I think people are quite interested in dinosaurs. You say that every time. Hello and welcome to episode 79 of the world famous Tetchboard Zoology Podcast. I'm John Keel and the Mothman of Point Pleasant. And I podcast <laughs> with. Hmm. Bernal Uverman. <laughs> I listened to a, um episode of one of the skeptical, skeptic podcasts recently where. Brian Dunning, I think, was talking about the Makila Mabembe, mm-hmm. and he insisted on pronouncing Uvamont. <laughs> <laughs> Bernard Uvamont. Uh, that's, that's Bernard Hoovelmans for uh, <laughs> uh, those of you who, who are not Franco phones. Phonic. I was going to say Francophiliac, <laughs> but uh, Francophiles, yeah, whatever. Um, where do we start? News from the world of Darren and John. <laughs> What's the what? what <laughs> any interest? Any interesting stuff has happened since the last time, John? That you think we should talk about? Um, you know, not really. It hasn't been very long. Um, so, mm. uh, no. Right. I haven't done any new artwork, or I have. Oh. Um. Have I? Just... Yeah, yeah. Oh, I'm still oh, working. Oh. I'm still working on pictures. I haven't released anything yet, but actually, oh. after this podcast, I will. Right. Uh, more sauropods. Still working on sauropods. Now, I can remember a time relatively recently, <laughs> like probably, with, certainly within the last two years, where John Conway said, I've had enough of dinosaurs. I'm not, there's, no, there's no more art to be done on the dinosaurs. I'm going to start a new... Uh, I think gonna... that was more than two years ago, but yeah, fair enough. Yep. You haven't, you haven't the problem that. is, Darren, I got really lazy. Mm-hmm. And I realised that doing other animals, especially <laughs> sort of, you know, yeah, things things that aren't very well understood, there's a lot of original research that has to go in there. <laughs> <laughs> Stick with what you know, I guess. Yeah. Like, yeah, fair enough. And it's just too hard. I just can't. I can't produce the volume of work that I need to if I'm having to research salamanders all the time. It's just not going to happen. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what maybe maybe of... someday I will I'll come back to that, but it's yeah, it's a lot harder. The people, the portraits of humans, though, that's something you just do for fun. Doesn't you know? Yeah, don't need a lot of research on that. That's always good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's that section of the show. Um, <laughs> I've been working on a whole bunch of stuff. There's, uh, I think I probably spoke about the the technical projects that are in the in the works so, and. If I talk about them now, it will, it will um, ruin uh, what I want to say about them when they're actually published. Yes, because because you know this is this is I, don't, I wouldn't say an interesting thing, but it's a thing that's on your mind when you go through the uh, steps of getting something towards publication. You write it, so there's like you know all the background research and the actual you know the 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 act of producing it. Then it's submitted, and then it goes through the system, and that's also you know that could be months, if not years, of your life toing and froing with editors and choosing pictures and stuff. And then 
Then there's the proof stage. It's oh wow, now I get to know what it's look what it looks like. That's also quite interesting, and can you know that can be a couple of weeks before publication. And then there's the publication. And if you're involved in books, technical papers, magazine articles, any of those things, you're you're, you're like you know, in the at the dinner table in the evening, where I say, oh, I dealt with the proofs today. Mm. They're really interesting, and and I discovered that the. Uh, the editor had replaced every use of the word two with the word three and uh, yeah, blah, 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 blah. So it's quite easy to, you know, for years and years, you could be talking about the production of a single book or article. So we have to avoid doing that because I could do that. For example, just, just the other day, I, I dealt with the proofs. No, you see, stop there. Dealt yeah. with the proofs for that article about how to be a writer. And it's, oh my God. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that's all, all Yeah. Good. Also, the problem with it is that often there's not really all that much you can say at certain stages. When you're thinking about it and maybe thinking about writing it up, you can talk about things to a relative degree. But once you start getting into the publication process, you're a bit like, well, wait for the paper. And that's a little bit less interesting, I think. Right? Yeah. Just teasing yep. is uh, yeah. less interesting. If you're not going to give the, um, you know, the game away, then... Yeah, it's better to wait until you can get to some of the sub- substance of what you're saying. Yeah, I'm in this. I'm in this. Uh, the the the, the uh, right now, I've got several projects that are at that part of their life where they're very close to. Uh, oh my god, this is boring podcasting. Any new sciencey stuff you think we should talk about? I mean, there's a whole, there's a, a huge bunch of um, you know new exciting fossil animals that have just been published. Yeah, um, I have not been keeping up. I'm only looking at sauropods. So. Uh... Oh right. Oh, there's um. Yeah, there's. So uh... you can tell me about them, and you can... it'll be like a reaction podcast. Okay, it's gonna it's gonna be really brief because I have I don't have any of my notes to hand. We 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 started this podcast with like you know two minutes of preparation. Where it'll never my... show. It'll never show. Uh, there's a, there's several um, abelisaurs. This really interesting group of um, mostly southern hemisphere, uh, air quotes, ceratosaurian theropods, or maybe not air quotes. Mm. Um, yeah, ceratosaurian theropods, mostly from South America, that have just been published. And there's one. Oh, where are the notes? There's one that's. I refuse. Okay, I, I have a, I have a new promise to myself, which is not to Google things during podcasting. There's, right. um, you make a, a lot of strange one. promises to yourself. I, I know. I know. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, where are the notes? I can't find them. It's no good. There's it's, it, there's there's a, a new abelisaur from I think from Brazil. Uh-huh. From the early Cretaceous, from something like the something like I don't know, let's say Halter Rivian, about 130 million years old, and it's called Spectro Venator, which means ghost hunter, and it's on that lineage to you know like uh, you know abelisaurs like Carnotaurus and Majungasaurus mm-hmm. and such, and it's uh, it's really interesting. It's really beautiful skull, and uh, some substantial amount of postcrania. It's named after Jean Claude Raj. I, I'm sure that's not how you pronounce his surname, but that's how I'm going to say it. And uh, he is a famous uh, snake fossil snake expert. And the first author of the Spectro Venator paper is um, Husam Zaya or Zaha. And again, I, I'm sure, surely pronouncing his uh, name incorrectly as well. Now, Z A H E R. Um, he uh, is, you know, he's got a track record of publishing good papers on dinosaurs, but he is primarily known. 
um, for his work on fossil snakes. So I thought this was quite funny. A fossil snake specialist is named Dinosaur, and it's named it after a fossil snake specialist. And, oh, sneaky. <laughs> I wonder, wonder who else has noticed that. Um, yeah, it's, did I say it's not a very large animal? So it's probably, I think, total length. They're going on for something like two and a half to three meters long, which... Uh, Oh, okay, pretty I'm small sure from, yeah. that's pretty small for given that you know the the best known abelisaurid abelisaurs are you know six meters or longer. Um, there is this a group called the um, noasaurids, which yep. in some classifications are regarded as abelisaurians. So there's noasaurid abelisaurians and abelisaurid abelisaurians but not all phylogenies find noasaurids to be close to abelisaurids some phylo- some studies do find noasaurids to be less close to abelisaurids than our ceratosaurs like ceratosaurus um so yeah competing alternative phylogenies are available and okay and the 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 most interesting thing i think about spectrovenator Okay, beside the fact that it's like got this, you know, sort of, as you'd expect, it's got a kind of air quotes, you know, intermediate morphology. It's not as extreme as abelisaurids, classic abelisaurids. Um, uh, The most interesting thing is that the context of where the fossil was actually found. And it's one of these annoying cases where they just have like a, a throwaway line in the paper and they don't elaborate on it. And it's also mentioned in passing in press releases and also don't elaborate on it. So, oh, please tell me more. That's the one thing I want to know about. It was literally found underneath the skeleton of a titanosaur. Um, to, and I, I don't know how to pronounce the name for this animal. Tapuisaurus or Tapuisaurus, a very well-represented, uh, I think these animals are Brazilian, uh, Brazilian titanosaur, which was named by Zaya et al. in 2011. And there's a press um, article, there's a popular article about this discovery, which says that the one of the uh, titanosaurs hind feet was literally like wedged in the mouth of this <laughs> abelisaur. Mm-hmm. So it's like what the heck, you know, did, was did it was did the sauropod stamp the theropod to death? Did were they both locked in combat and the sauropod fell on the abelisaur or was it like a rotting carcass or something and the abelisaur was, you know, burrowing in there and got stuck under the carcass or who knows you know there's all like that is so cool you know tell us more about that um but nah. no you know. <laughs> well i mean this is not a big animal presuming this so this titanosaur is relatively large i think it's middling size tapoisaurus mm, it's still I, I... unlikely that such a small um theropod would be locked in combat with a elephant sized it's not uh, that small. If, if it's an elephant-sized sauropod, it could easily be tackled by a three-meter-long theropod. A three-meter-long theropod is probably about human weight. Um, there are cases where tigers have attacked elephants. There's all kinds of crazy stuff that can happen. Tigers are double human weight, right? I mean, yeah, okay, okay. Just, mm. like, uh, yeah, I, I was just wondering whether a titanosaur would be even bothered with an animal like that maybe you're you're playing devil's advocate on the conservative side i'm playing devil's <laughs> advocate on the uh the weird the weird side the, the possibility that all kinds of you know unusual things can happen there are cases of um there's a few cases of fossil animals that have been squished by other ones 
um there's a there's a there's a coyote a fossil coyote that's underneath a mammoth mm-hmm. and, and there you would say well a coyote's not going to tackle a mammoth is it well of course not but Again, what's the context? Just got really unlucky. Was it really unlucky? Was it was it trampled in a fit of rage? Was it nipping at the heels, or was it or was it just you know mucking around under the carcass and it got stuck under the carcass or crawled under the carcass? Or just walking there? along and the thing just fell over and died on it? Exactly. All <laughs> all equally plausible. Um, so, um, I've got to say because I'm looking at the paper now because I'm going to Google things while you're doing this because I need some visual. Um, you know, and I'm sure podcast listeners do this too, right? Well, a lot of people listen on their phones, they probably can't. But anyway, I've got to take issue with this paper in a very, very important way. They have coloured the known bones, the preserved bones, as sort of a medium blue, and yeah. the unpreserved bones as white. Yeah. What kind of insanity is this? I know, that is weird, isn't it? It is seriously weird. It's very, very mm-hmm. confusing. I was, I was thinking... Darren, you've got it all wrong. They don't have the skull. Yeah, they, only know, they only know the scapula and a couple of ribs. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. Whereas in actual okay. fact, if you actually look at the skull they've got, yeah. it's like, wow. It's an <laughs> amazing great. skull. Yeah. 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 Okay. <laughs> Although I, it is kind of a missing, it is a shame they're missing the forelimb because that's also very interesting in a, a Bellasaurus, right? That crazy what little. The, well, forelimb. what the heck is going on with the uh, with the abelisaur forelimb? And I wish, I wish we totally had a handle on that because we don't. Um, what is going on with abelisaurs in general? They are really weird to my eyes. Their, their skulls are odd. Their their um, shoulder girdles odd. Their very their limbs are really long. Their hind limbs. Oh, it's really. They're very strange in, well, yeah, animals. In some of them, anyway. some of them, some of them are very chunky, relatively yeah. short. Well, that's limbs. true. Yes. Yeah. But some so, of them are very long, right? Yeah. So. Um, yeah, you got you yeah. do have long limb ones and short limb ones. It's difficult to, it's dangerous to generalize about them. Yeah. If, I, I wish it was better understood what's going on with the forelimbs because, frankly, there's um, totally contradictory statements, and um, I have, and for various projects, I have mostly followed um, views. Uh, I've mostly followed the views of those authors who've said that in the in very the best known abelisaurs, Carnotaurus from Argentina, probably from the very latest Cretaceous, the idea that the humerus is really long, the elbows are mobile, the forearm is very very short, the wrist is immobile, and the hands appear to be strongly reduced, possibly without any, possibly you know maybe not even any claws on them. It's sort of like these weird stumpy little like Jabba the Hutt style hands. And yet the despite all that reduction and, and there's there's a paper been published that Phil Center has actually does actually use the forelimb of Carnotaurus as an example of a relictual structure in dinosaurs. You know, it's it's no longer useful in in, in, in function, so it's withering away over time. Um, becoming increasingly yeah. Um, that's that's not in keeping with the fact that they've got like a you know really massively developed um, uh, coracoid and scapula indicating yeah. that all, all the musculature there, pectoral muscles and everything is really like over, just overbuilt and also with the fact that the top of the humerus has got this ball-like joint so as probably quite a few of our listeners will know in a book called All Yesterdays um, you and I don't know, did Memo come up with this independently? You both did these pieces of art. Which, why, why are you laughing? 
Well, because, yeah, it was classic bit of miscommunication at the beginning of the uh, <laughs> project, wasn't it? Like, oh, we're both doing the same thing? Okay, well, they're both good. Let's put them both in. Yeah, you did Carnotaurus, he did Majungasaurus. So, okay, yeah, yeah. You Anyway, what we're getting at here is the mobility at the top of the humerus, top of the upper arm, indicates that there was a, a massive range of movement. So we came up with this whole thing about maybe these animals do some actually using their arms in a display um presumably the massively developed pectoral musculature was sort of part of this display as well so you know a, 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 an animal in good condition you could sort of see like big muscles at the same time as it's whirling these comically small arms and again phil center who's very good at coming up with ideas like this he also published a paper where he specifically said this he said you know could it be He's actually been inconsistent here because in one paper he says that the forelimbs are probably relictual and they had no function. <laughs> Another one he said, oh, wow, they're so weird. They must have had the most bizarre function. <laughs> so sexual display was the only thing we could think of. So, um, yeah, so there's all that. Um, but then here and there, elsewhere in the literature, there's other relevant experts, uh, Matt Carano uh, particular, in particular, who've said that, nah, I've looked at the forelimb of Carnotaurus, the actual specimen, because there's only one, and it's actually not that weird. And it might actually be pretty standard for a theropod. And I'm like, oh, no, oh. Please, <laughs> please don't say that. It's um, all wrong. Oh, yeah, well, it's like, oh, come on, what's the deal there? Because... Uh, Okay. Uh, the, the fossil, the, even if you, I haven't seen the original fossil. I've seen like quite a few casts of it. They're in several museums, but um, yeah, even if you go and see the actual fossil, I understand that it's ambiguous enough for you to be peering at these like dark blotches on the rock, and it's like, are they finger bones? Are they phalanges? Are they claws? The actual ungles? Uh, people disagree in their interpretation of this, right? Hmm. And um, and and having gone down that that route i think we, we might as well stick with this now we we should also say i don't think we have before that there is um there's an interesting backstory to the carnotaurus holotype in that um it's uh, it was famously announced in the early 90s as this amazing theropod that had uh, huge swathes of skin preserved on it including like big patches from the side of the body, top of the body, big patch from the side of the tail, and supposedly uh, at least something from the face. Yeah. And uh, it was described by Jose Bonaparte. Is it Bonaparte or Bonaparte? Jose Bonaparte? Yeah, I think it's Bonaparte. Bonaparte. And a co-author. Um, George Calvo. Uh, I can't remember. Um, and, um, yeah, they published this initial little semi-technical article in, uh, National Geographic used to do a scientific, you know, series of papers, National Geographic. None of this is rehearsed or prepared. I haven't got anything with me. I'm doing this off the top of my head. So I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But they did this like National Geographic science explorers monthly or something right and they the initial paper in there said the crazy new amazing new theropod don't use the word crazy <laughs> and uh, and um it's got loads of skin and stephen Cherkus, who we discussed last time uh very you know no longer with us but an amazing paleo artist and model maker 
he went, ah, skin, loads of skin. So rushed down to Argentina and um, went to see the actual specimen. And I'm showing John, for the purposes of the podcast, obviously a picture of the Stephen Cherkus life-size model of Carnotaurus that he constructed. And um, um, Stephen Cherkus built like a small maquette, probably like about 60 centimetres long, and latterly a life-size thing, a uh, life-size model depicting all of the skin detail that he could glean from the Carnotaurus specimen. And, um, and it's obvious that the animal's got the typical non-overlapping semicircular and oval scales that you'd expect for a dinosaur. But it's also got several rows of um, sort of semi-conical osteoderms, like running parallel to the spine. Um, but the photographs in the final longer paper that Bonaparte and his colleague published um they uh, you google it while i'm talking who is the other author who published carnotaurus with Jose uh, carano no it's not matt it's not matt carano no it's, a, it's an argentinian um scientist leo salgado who's one of bonaparte's phd students literally just google carnotaurus sastry and it'll say bonaparte and i think it's george calvo um yeah yeah the, the the final paper that they published which was in the los angeles um uh, contributions in science of the los angeles county museum um the photographs of the specimen with the skin are really not that great they're annoyingly small and um don't show much detail and it's like, um, you know, if you're talking about these giant swathes of skin, apparently significant enough for Stephen Cherkus to be able to make this life-size model, which show a lot of detail, it's like there should be giant, full-page, you know, hyper-detailed pictures of the skin. And even today, they've never been published. So I've asked a few people that work on abelisaurs and are South American, you know, can you please just go and get photos for me of the skin? Um, I haven't chased that up in, in months so um, I, I do, I do need to. But um, but coincidentally, within recent months, an article, sorry, a photograph appeared online of the skull on the day that it was found. Have you seen this? No. So they've got there's, it's is undoubtedly some famous South American paleontologist, and I don't know his name, and he's in a quarry holding the skull. And it's fully 3D and everything. And he's having a joke for this photo because he's taken off his cap and he's put his cap on the Carnotaurus. And it's covered in a thick black rind of what looks like organic, you know, stuff, preserved tissue. And uh, over the top of its snout are like a hundred little, like, little kind of horny, lumpy things. Yeah. And it's like, wait a minute, are you telling me that when they actually found, and the horns, by the way, these big, thick, bally things, they're not like the, they're not like the pointed, right? Uh, what Cherkis is showing. Yeah. Nor are they the flat things that Greg Paul uh, depicted in 1988 Predator Dinosaurs of the World. So you know, immediately this this photograph appeared. I shared it. I'm like, wait a minute, did they actually have all this stuff on Carnotaurus and they prepped it away? And then it turned out that, there was, and there was a lot of toing and froing over the couple of days when this, uh, you know, was 
I don't want to say became known because I'm sure that you know a whole you know relevant specialists were familiar with it, but I hadn't seen it. And um, it's like no, that was that wasn't actually soft tissue. That was just like um, a mineral concretion because you know that Bonaparte and the other author Novus and Fernando Cor- Novus, yep, and Correa, Rodolfo Correa. Okay, so it's Bonaparte et al. Right. So yes. my apologies for forgetting their names. Um, yeah, so it's Carnotaurus is Bonaparte, Korea, and Calvo. Yeah? Okay, no Calvo. So who is it? Bonaparte? Novus. Novus. Fernando Novus and... Korea. Korea. I'm going to write that down so I remember it. <laughs> Bonaparte, Novus, and Korea. Although, as you said, there were two, so I don't know whether that's the original, like, semi-technical. I think that's probably... That's no, that's contributions in science. So that's the longer paper that you were talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so no, quite a few people say no. Um, if you actually look at what Bonaparte et al. say in the longer paper, they say that it was found in a concretion. So there's meant to be, you know, minerals of some kind that have, uh, um, yeah, sort of, uh, you know, like grown on top of the actual skull. So don't worry, they didn't prep away soft tissue. Mm. Um, the caveat to that caveat is that I know of many, or not, we know of many cases um, of fossil animals of all ages where people dug stuff up and it had, like, black crap around the bones. <laughs> and they thought, we don't need that. And they prepped it all away to get to the bones. And then in the modern age, you know, literally within the last, like, five years, they actually, they kept they kept a little bit, they dug up a sauropod, right? And they kept a little thumb-sized chunk of this black crap, and they tested it, and it, and it, and it proves, like, positive for all organics. It's like, oopsie, <laughs> that was, that was the animal's skin, musculature, and other soft tissues. And, uh, yeah, that's happened again and again and again. So, I wouldn't say that it's entirely out of, ha- out of, it's within the realms of possibility that some of that <laughs> black rind concretion associated with the Carnotaurus holotype could actually, in you know, at least part of it could have been original soft tissue. Yes, I guess uh, the thing to say about that though is that um, I don't, I'm no, I am about as soft far from, yeah, or I'm about as far from uh, taphonomist, or I, I don't understand how fossilization works, but. I would presume that you can get the remnants of a lot of soft tissue that are no longer at all in the shape of the soft tissue. Not just that it's sort of distorted, but it's it's chemically basically disintegrated. So you end up with a lot of black stuff which has the organic components in it, but actually it wouldn't really tell you anything about... So preserving it in terms of its chemical composition might be interesting, but just its shape might not be very interesting right? not very think, relevant, it's yeah. not telling you much about life appearance, which is what I'm interested in the exactly. only, I, the only I think, relevant stuff I think that's a really important point because um, now like, if you're interested in reconstructing the life appearance of fossil animals, we absolutely adore these things like you know, the, the famous feathered theropods where the animal's squished flat and you can actually see the feathers coming off its you know, forelimbs for example but there's many 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 cases where people say oh this animal clearly had like a you know a a crest that came down the front of its head to this specific point on its nose and in at least some of those cases and probably quite many of them uh, and, and this has been tested I'll come to that in a second 
It's like, yeah, but you're talking about a thing that's been squished flat for 130 million years in rock, and it was rotting at the time that it was incorporated into the sediment record. So if you take a roadkill animal today, I take a corpse today, chuck it in a hole, bury it, subject it to assorted, you know, changes in temperature, and then, you know, imagine groundwater seeping through it and all the kind of stuff that happens to dead things over millions, tens of millions of years. It's what you actually get at the end doesn't necessarily record exactly life uh, appearance. So uh, who was it that did it? I've, I've forgotten the authors, but there are some authors who put a, they took a, a modern songbird, like a green finch or a serin or something, you know, some finchy type bird, and they squashed it in a hydraulic press and they <laughs> subjected it to some change in temperature and then they uh, photographed it. And it's like, now, if we assumed, do you know this study? Do you know what I'm talking about? I, it is vaguely familiar, but I don't, I don't know whether I ever read it or saw it. I think it was, yeah, anyway, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, well, they basically said that if you try to reconstruct the life appearance of this bird based on that fossil, you would say, oh, it had like a big sticking out feathery crest. Mm-hmm. And, it had, and it didn't have complex um, veined feathers on its body. Uh, instead it had like you know like fur all over its body because it just had simple filaments and i think there was also something about the feathers having like stripes or something you know that and and basically none of those things were true of the live animal (laughs) Uh, whatever species of finch it was they don't have a crest they don't have fur like feathers on the body and they don't have the the particular you know striping or whatever was inferred Uh, those they were they were all artifacts of crushing distortion and we don't want to say it's doom and gloom because, you know, in many cases it's not. We can glean a, a huge amount of information about life appearance from fossils. But in at least, you know, in, in some percentage of cases, uh, we're either getting it wrong and we don't yet know it. There's the known unknowns and the unknown <laughs> unknowns. Yeah. 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 But in other cases, no, you've got it wrong because you've misinterpreted the effect of distortion yeah uh, and certainly flattening and um yeah and uh decomposition are just gonna <laughs> completely ruin uh sort of outlines and where things begin and end and stuff like that it's incredibly difficult to tell yeah so yeah i you know i was i think that's in some ways good news about carnotaurus in that yeah okay um <laughs> yeah it might have been soft tissue but it probably wasn't good enough to actually tell what was going on. Otherwise, I think they would have preserved it, right? Because they were aware that this was a big deal to have the skin and stuff. So it might have been it might have been soft tissue remnants, but it wasn't visually very interesting. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that's true. Um, yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot that could be said about Carnotaurus. So who doesn't like it? Uh, in fact, I have, I have like, look, I've got the, this model by Collector right here on the desk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nice, quite nice color scheme. Always, yeah, that's, I know. is that the Shirker's color scheme? Uh, essentially, apart, from, he didn't do the uh, this cream-colored striping. Oh on yeah, the, uh, oh, yeah, across the face and, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, I know, I know, this is good podcasting. Yeah, showing, great podcasting. Uh, showing yeah. dinosaur toys. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I could we we could talk a lot more about a belly sauce, but I think that'll do for now. That was uh, fair enough. Well, you had, you were saying there was something about Sauriscian dinosaurs and uh, Brontosaurus yeah, yeah, that's, and that's, something else which didn't seem to connect very well. But that was Scansoropterygids. Yes. yes. So 
Um, well, let's talk about that then. So, if you follow me on the SoMe's social medias, <laughs> and uh, we possibly have discussed this last time, I can't remember. I am in my infinite spare time putting together another book, uh, one that's on. Um, Oh, how do I describe it? It's it's kind of sort of like a little encyclopedia about books, but I'm about dinosaurs, but I, <laughs> but I'm specifically not saying. Oviraptorosauria were named in 1924 when Henry Fairfield Osborne discovered the ectopterygoid of Oviraptor philoceratops, and then it was found. Instead, it's the like uh, the, the the take on um, how have how has our view on dinosaurs come together through uh you know the uh the not necessarily the technical literature but the sort of what we call the gray literature or the stuff that surrounds the technical literature you might not think that david lambert's collins guide to dinosaurs or david norman's illustrated encyclopedia of dinosaurs published 1986 are authoritative primary sources but i would argue that works of that sort don glutes Dino Dictionary or whatever it's called and things like that. Greg Poole's books, Robert Backer's The Dinosaur Heresies. I argue, and I think I'm right, that our view, our collectively, you know, humanity's view of what dinosaurs are like is based almost, it's based more on, I'm going to be bold here, it's based more on the views of this group of people who aren't entirely primary researchers or scientists, but are instead scientists and writers or their writers or their artists or their artist writers and if you if you look at like you know if you go and ask a hundred science savvy people not your average person on the street because they tend to know nothing about dinosaurs apart from what they've seen in jurassic world uh, no disrespect intended but that is that is the case if you ask like a hundred science savvy people what what do we think that carnotaurus looks like today that that view doesn't come from having read Bonaparte et al. 1990. It comes from, like, okay, Robert Backer hasn't drawn Carnotaurus to my knowledge, but it will be based on what Greg Poole has drawn or what David Norman has said in his popular books uh, or what David Lambert said in, you know, yeah. I'm a bit, yeah. Did you, did you, do you know what I'm saying? Is this Is this valid or am I talking a load of old shite? No, you're completely correct. Um yeah, the technical literature is entirely invisible to most people. Um, they don't know where it is, right? <laughs> they don't know what. They don't really even know what it is, which is why often. Um, no, I guess I'm getting too much into the non-science savvy people. But even science savvy people never look at the technical literature. Most of it's completely opaque. You can't read it unless you're a specialist. Most papers are written in a way that is. I mean, I'm not saying that all papers are like this. There are papers that your average person that sort of knew the topic could read, but the vast majority are not, and right. you just you just can't. So there's no there's not really much reward for going and looking. Oh, they've, they've found a new dinosaur. I'm going to go look up the technical paper. Yeah. Right. Oh. Yeah. There's not even a picture of it. Yeah. <laughs> so so I think so I think it's fair it's fair to say that if we're talking about how have we pieced together our you know, collective take on uh, any given prehistoric animal. It's like, that's your primary source. It's like, how has it been spoken about and portrayed in the grey and popular 
literature. And I would and, say this is true even of scientists, even of specialists. Their approach to it has all been shaped by these works, right? And yeah. something a little bit outside of their specialty, why not read it if it's a good secondary source and that's where you'll get your information rather than trying to read, a, you know, a hundred papers <laughs> and try to synthesize the thing yourself, which you're going to mm. probably get wrong anyway. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, so that's, that's, yeah. All right. Well, that's kind of the angle that I'm taking. And I've, um, I've, I've discovered that quite a few things that I kind of, you know, okay, I was born in the 1970s. My most formative influences are from the 80s and 90s. And, and here we are in, I don't know, whatever it is at the moment. <laughs> early early 21st century and it's like i i don't think it's um that that uh, I, I do i do worry whether anyone would say what i'm about to say based on their own age but i do think that 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 being influenced by thoughts on dinosaurs during that period in particular okay the 70s meh maybe but certainly the 80s and 90s from my perspective, that was a critical time in terms of where we're at, like, right, you know, publishing the book now. So it's about now. Obviously, it'll be different. You know, things will be different in 10 or 20 years. But right now, it's like the formative period that set us on the path we're on now happened in the 80s and 90s because you have the dinosaur renaissance had happened, more or less, or the initial volleys had been fired. You know, this initial view had been formed. And then in the 80s and you know going up to certainly certainly like 96 about that time it was like now the sort of the fallout from that was um you know coming together partly because of phylogenetics so it's like wow okay so how do we actually start to piece together this like new view of dinosaurs you know what does it actually mean for uh, is are, are these old views of the rest of the 20th century you know how do they stand up when we start testing them using this new technique and so I think I would I would argue that the 80s in particular were a really formative time for um, where we are now. So that's that's part of the story as well of this book. Yes, because well, partly just everyone's ages, right? That um, <laughs> the people who are in power at the moment, in terms of scientific power, I guess, right, who mm. are publishing lots of papers, who are on you know directing the research, tend to have grown up around about that time. I mean, uh, well, they're they're now becoming the the most published, the most prolific um, people. So, yeah, so that's partly just age. But I do think there is also, um, there was an acceleration of what happened in dinosaur science at that time, a coming together of a few things. And um, uh, I think the, the number of papers that started to be published and new discoveries and stuff really started to accelerate in the... Mm. Probably more in the nineties than the eighties, but yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so, so what? So I mean, cladistics um, for, for God's sake. I mean, that's really started yeah. to make inroads, and that's like a massive technical change that swept through paleontology. Indeed, uh, everything to do with what we call tree-based thinking. Yeah. Um, and for a number of reasons, which are in in a way complicated, but in a way simple. There's also a corresponding to that time as well, this huge burst in just the way um, the the way the sort of how, how do I describe this? The way literature is partitioned. Like if you look at the number of books on dinosaurs, for example, published across the 20th century, 
there's a ha- well, not a handful. There's a very low number pre 1984 or something, and then once you kind of get in, again into the 80s and 90s, it's like all of a sudden there's like loads of formative books that are that that uh, that appear. It's now it's now considered like more okay and desirable to uh, you know publish books just about dinosaurs or specifically about certain aspects of dinosaurs, that kind of thing. And again, a lot of those books are written by people who are really you know, reporting these new um, uh, proposals, new discoveries, and in cases writing about them when it's still not quite clear what the story is. So they're kind of just, you know, doing their best at sort of muddling through it and sometimes getting things horribly wrong. There's there's uh, um, uh, David Lambert's uh, books, which were very influential to uh, teenage me, uh, like Colin's Guide to Dinosaurs, I think published 1984, I think. I wasn't a teenager in 1984, I was younger, but um, um, there's stuff in that where he'd obviously just, you know, just heard about something and it's just starting to be discussed. But of course, if you just, if you just talk about something, if you talk about something that's only just been discussed, the preliminary results, it's like, you know, give it another five years, it turns out they, they got that completely wrong. And covering it in a book, you look like an idiot because... Uh, you know that that um, Jack Horner and his colleagues they thought that they they famously had found by the you know late seventies they'd found uh, the so-called um, Egg Mountain location with a myosaur nest, this duckbill dinosaur hadrosaur nest. You know they published on that, but they also found this other site they called Egg Island, and they thought there was another kind of plant-eating dinosaur that was also nesting colonially. And then they realised that this is some kind of predatory dinosaur because they found like shed teeth, which which you know showed that it was a, 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 a plant, a carnivore, carnivore of some kind. And they're like, this appears to be a a carnivorous ornithischian. So it's like a hypsilophodon type dinosaur. Long story short, it turned out to be like truodontid theropods. And this was just like, you know, they they mistakenly thought that the nests of that kind of dinosaur were from an ornithischian. But in David Lambert's book, um, you've got, <laughs> I think he actually says, it's as incongruous as a carnivorous cow, a, <laughs> a meat-eating hypsilophodon. They've got a reconstruction of a hypsilophodon type dinosaur which looks really odd. It's got really weird feet and everything. And um, <laughs> so, yeah, you, you know, if you, you, you couldn't wait for the actual science to be done on it, they had to, you know, because of the nature of the book. But, um, but what I've, yeah, so, so there's a bunch of books and they, I think that, that, that because those books, um, you know, try and encapsulate things as they're understood at that time, this, this kind of, second wave of the dinosaur renaissance in a sense um they are sort of burning in this idea that all these classic ideas that we've now yeah they're classic now but they weren't then all these new ideas of the 60s and 70s and you know new new for the 80s those books are taking are taking ideas that are you know from the 60s and 70s and they're sort of burning them in and and you know looked at now those ideas seem seem classic and it's oh yeah yeah that's that that stuff was all like established but during the 60s 70s 80s um and and you could say now those ideas have been you know stable ish for like 40 years to give you a specific example of what i'm talking about i'm talking about things like sorischia ornithischia 
stuff like that. Sauropodomorpha includes a air quotes pro sauropod assemblage in addition to sauropod stuff like that. That's all that's classic stuff. What I've been interested to find, I mean, I knew this already, but you know, just reading through it all again, is when you actually look at the rest of the 20th century, it's um, prior to the dinosaur renaissance, that stuff is in total chaos. And you've got all kinds of ideas being proposed. Everything's up in the air. There's a couple of attempts, actually, mostly due to Alfred Romer in his textbooks of the 50s and 60s. Um, a couple of attempts to try and tidy this up and come up with like a, you know, uh, sort of consensus classification. But apart from that, it's most of the ideas that we now regard as having been like established and set in stone mm. in the loosest possible sense. Because cause that, that's a dangerous thing to say, because we all know, you know, science changes all the time. No one, no scientist would say that. But you know what I mean? So these things that are agreed on, the consensus has existed for like 40, 50 years is you don't have to go outside of that at all. And it becomes, you know, like chaotic, uh, which I would say is contrary to what's said in the books that say that <laughs> so the books that say that books of the 60s set well, the books of the 80s they say that i mean oh my god how tedious is this now sauriscia versus ornithischia now we would have discussed can you hear the dog by the way yeah it's all right it's not it doesn't me, it's not um like loud enough to yeah. get over get over your talking anyway go ahead I shall scold him when I've finished. <laughs> yeah, give him a good talking to. Um, <laughs> <laughs> did I mention we? Did I mention we've got a cat now as well? Oh, really? A cat as well. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Mochi. Mochi is a little ragdoll thing. It's really nice. Uh, he likes coming in the office. I try and discourage that. Um, yeah. Okay. So speaking as someone who's written a lot about dinosaurs and read a lot about dinosaurs, it's as soon as someone says dinosaurs. Did you know fall into two major groups based on the anatomy of their hips? Sauriscia or... Oh, yawn. Oh, my God. You're not doing the Sauriscia Venus on this thing again. Really? Uh, yeah, as, as we've discovered, uh, as we've discussed even recently, that system is now um, in, let's say, under some discussion because of this new proposal, new-ish proposal, 2017 proposal from Matthew Barron and colleagues that... Um, uh, dinosaurs might better be divided into sauropodomorpha versus ornithoscelida. Um, but, right, you get the impression from the books I'm talking about, from the books in the 80s, that Sauriscia vernus ornithoscelida is, oh, it's been with us, it's been with us since the days of the dinosaurs. <laughs> since It's been with us since since Harry Seeley, Harry Govia Seeley, proposed that classification in 1888 but yep. drill into it look into the actual history of what people have said <laughs> and uh, like he proposed that in 1888 and then everyone thought this is rubbish it's just just ignore it it's just nonsense and then um 18 when is it 1881 i think othniel marsh uh, obviously, you know, Cope versus Marsh fame. Um, he proposes total rival classification uh, involving... No, 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 I'm getting this confused. I'm getting this confused. It's 
It's everyone ignores Soriskia versus Ornithischia until von Herner, German paleontologist Friedrich von Herner, in about I think it's First World War, which I think it's about 1914, um, where he says, um, "I've forgotten what he said. I can't. I've, I'm getting. I'm getting confused. I don't. I don't know this well enough to really talk through it. But um, the point is that you had." Two competing classification systems, everyone ignoring Soriskia versus Ornithischia system, uh, until round about the time of the First World War, when I think von Hoerner says, actually, we should probably go for this. Let's use it. And then, because the von Hoerner system conflicts with the with Marsh's system, which is in some way different, for the next several decades in the 20th century, you have you don't have any consistency. You have people using these different classifications that today look quite arcane uh, quite archaic you know von Herner proposed that Soriskia includes Silurosauria as a sort of like ancestral group of small slender boned animals and then everything else was in Pachypodosauria the big thick lizards which includes you know the big ass theropods he didn't recognize a theropoda so he didn't call them theropods but it includes the animals that today we'd call big theropods in addition to what we'd now call sauropodomorphs, because he didn't use the term sauropoda at the time. Sauropodomorpha, sorry, he came up with that later. Um, yeah, so then, and then, you know, the next several decades, you've got competing, you know, it's unclear who thinks what, the classification isn't settled. And then you've got these attempts to try and sort it out, like I say, from, from Roma in the 50s and 60s. And then by the 80s, it does start to come together when so many things have been... You've also got to go through, and I'll say this is the final thing I'm going to say on this because it's very dry and tedious, but there's one final stage you've got to go through before you get to the tidying up of things post-dinosaur renaissance. Of late, okay, late 74, so obviously when Backer and Galton propose dinosaur monopoly and come up with their, you know, a, a, their, their new classification. But before you get to that, you've got to go through this phase where people are talking about rampant polyphily mm. for dinosaurs, where... Uh, uh, qu- quite a few workers um, sort of partly bought Seeley's idea about Soriskia and Ornithischia, but thought that the individual uh, groups within Soriskia, so theropods, maybe big theropods versus small theropods, and sauropodomorphs and Ornithischians, and maybe several groups of Ornithischians, they thought that these animals all evolved independently from different Triassic archosaurs. Animals that today we would call Rausukians, you know, which are today we we've got good reason for thinking that they are members of the crocodile lineage and none to do with dinosaurs. But they thought that those animals were ancestral to the different groups of dinosaurs, as well as a bunch of other things that are, you know, somewhere close to Archosauria, like Ornithosuchus and whatnot. So in that if if you follow that pol- polyphyletic argument, dinosaur was just used as an informal term for an assortment of big archosaurs that evolved from different ancestors. Yes. Dinosauria wasn't a clade. And it's uh, Bucker and Galton's 1974 paper that says, well, actually, we think it is. And current thinking is that they're right. You know, there's good evidence from, from anatomy and from, you know, new fossil Triassic animals that have been found that um, support that view. But But, yeah, this... This, this, you know, how we got to where we are today is actually really complicated, and you know, yeah. And I, this is what on. I find kind of interesting about the dinosaur renaissance is, is that the 
cladistic revolution actually took place relatively late, right, in, in the history of all this stuff. So you get, as you say, virtual chaos in terms of classification. And then we think of the dinosaur renaissance and maybe cleaning this up. But they kind of did, but without very much rigour, and a lot of it was pretty shaky. And even, like, you've got people who are classic dinosaur renaissance writers writing, classifying dinosaurs in, in pretty strange ways still, right up until cladistics sweeps in in the 90s, I think, to really clean this up. And I think the problem is that essentially there still was no method. There were people looking more closely and caring more about dinosaur anatomy and classification, I think, in the dinosaur renaissance. It attracted a bunch of scientists who were interested in it. But they still had no method, um, agreed upon method for sorting this out. And so you, you, you'd still ended up with a bit, I think, closer to reality, but still chaos. Um, which is something, yeah, um, it, it always strikes you when you look at the old writings on dinosaurs. It's just, what? This is, you think this is related to this, but not to that? That's just... How did how did you arrive at this conclusion? And often it's not very clear. They were looking at one little thing, or, you know, whatever. I don't know. Um, it often varies by the particular person and circumstance, obviously, because chaos reigned in methodology and results. If, if indeed it could the, be said I mean, to be a methodology, which it kind of wasn't. <laughs> Well, yeah. So an argument, an argument that some members of the old guard, which, by the way, is a terrible film. Don't waste time watching it. Um, it's a film about immortal people with Charlie Theron in it. Um, a, a few members of the old guard, and in particular Alan Charig, made the following point, which is that when you look at those early forays into using uh, phylogenetic systematics on dinosaurs it wasn't really different from what anyone had ever done before because it was people saying we identify these specific anatomical features as connecting the members of this group and therefore you know if you've got those features then you belong to this group which we you know you can call it a clade at that point even though what that term wasn't used so much um now, when people going all the way back to like, you know, certainly the late 1800s are talking about identifying a group, they're often saying, you know, they're talking in terms of like key characters, you know, specific bits of anatomy. You know, we recognize it wouldn't be out of keeping for a piece of literature from the late 1800s to say that, you know, the uh, the the distinctive narrow three toed foot of these animals, you know, unites them within this particular group, which I'm going to call X it's like that's not that's not really different um pre the use of uh computers to help you know handle vast you know blocks of data um your your all your early forays in you know not just for dinosaurs but for all the other animals it was it was used on you you could you can you can you can use like a handful of characters on a handful of taxa and say I, I can sort these into clades right so you could say that what they start doing in it's 1984 when phylogenetics of this kind is first used on dinosaurs because there was some specific uh, uh mesozoic terrestrial ecosystems meeting i think uh, paul sereno david norman uh greg paul a couple of other people they all published papers in this volume at the same time and sereno was the first to publish it in 1986 uh, in um, a study he did of ornithischian phylogeny you could argue 
and like I say, Sharig did argue, you could argue that what they're doing isn't really different from the, the you know, all the stuff that went beforehand. Where it differs and what Sharig specifically didn't get, and Sharig, by the way, was a proponent of um, the polyphyletic view of dinosaurs, this old fashioned view that the, the name dinosaur shouldn't even be used. Yeah. Um, which he never, which funnily enough, he never said in all his books called The Dinosaurs. <laughs> What's his, what's his famous his book that's the precursor to my Natural History Museum book? Uh, the I forget what it's called, but um, yeah, he never said. Oh, by the way, let's stop using the word dinosaur, which he should have done. So it should just be called the big old reptiles. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what was what was different? What was different about the philosophy was the idea that uh, once you're in a clade, you never leave. That was the difference. No, I don't. I don't agree. Because that. sorry, go ahead. Well, let me. Ju- okay, let, yeah, let you, me. Because that's probably one point, point but I think you you are missing another crucial point. But go ahead. Well, you make that point once I do this. Yes, okay. So that 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 meant that from that point, if someone found, like to our surprise, we find that Group X falls into this Group Y, which we've identified on the basis of these, you know these key characters, you know, autapomorphies, to use technical term, it's like, oh, this now means that they have to be identified as as that. So, uh, spe- you know, the, the example that you're probably already thinking of is birds are theropods, but a more profound, exa- well, a less discussed article, uh, uh, a less discussed example is several of those early studies, they keep on finding ceratopsians to fall within ornithopods. And that's totally contrary to like the traditional use of those terms. It's there's all it's quite complicated why that result was was found. Part of it is because the concept of what an ornithopod was was so vague and broad that it it included basically most ornithischians. So it was inevitable that um, ceratopsians would would fall in there. But previously, if that had happened, if people had got that result, they would have said that. Um, even though that's the case, ceratopsians did evolve from among these things called ornithopods. It doesn't mean that ceratopsians were ornithopods, whereas post-1984, 1986-ish, now you have to say, well, actually, they are. So there's a difference in um, yeah, in like how, how these discoveries are actually described and how they're reflected in the nomenclature we use. That's kind of... Yes, well, yeah. I think that's an effect, though. So... Yes, that we should use phylogenetic um, taxonomy and phylogenetic systematics. But I think what is missing from that is that cladistic analysis is actually fundamentally different. He didn't understand what cladistic analysis was, from what you're saying. So, yes, you originally you couldn't use a lot of characters because if you were doing it by hand, I don't know how many you can realistically put in there, maybe 12 or something, right? Um, you look at as Willie, many Willie Hennig's early early work, and yeah, it's like this. Yeah, twenty characters, um, which does kind of mean that you choose them because you kind of have to. Um, but the idea behind cladistic analysis, and where anyone with a brain could have seen where it was going to go, where you were going to put as many characters as you could possibly come up with in there to make a statistical thing, which you didn't really understand anymore. You didn't keep track of where the characters were or special characters or anything like this it was a way of statistically sampling the anatomical um, diversity and change basically um, 
and that is fundamentally different from choosing characters to base groups on um and that's why the chaos stopped because you, no one could say well my character is the important one and your character is not important your character is conversion my character is phylogeny which is what the arguments were before that um cladistic analysis was like no just put them all in there and let the computer figure out which is the simplest tree or the most likely tree or whatever a lot of statistical stuff that i to be honest i don't particularly understand i don't think many people who aren't specialists do but so i do think that that's that's a crucial change and cladistics went with the phylogenetic phylogenetic taxonomy but didn't have to we could have we could have kept with um paraphyletic groups and used um cladistic analysis it's not um because you can easily say this clade minus this clade is like the prosauropoda for example is all sauropodomorphs who are, that aren't sauropods and if you've defined sauropods you get a paraphyletic prosauropoda but it's perfectly cladistically defined um so yes uh, what i'm saying is that the taxonomy was important but it's actually also it's also a separate story to the cladistic analysis going underneath it which cl cleaned up a lot of the chaos of course it, it's made its own chaos in places obviously because the resolution we get out of it means some things jump around and you get odd things that jump around from here to there all over the place but it's still it's nothing like the chaos of old well there's a there's a really interesting well what i think is an interesting thing but it, it feels like it's beyond talking about uh cladistics as applied to dinosaurs and it's that um where is the what what is the degree of overlap between phylogenetic systematics for those of you who don't know the term cladistics was originally used as sort of an insult a bit like you know big bang theory was sort of like designed to take the piss out of the theory cladistics was as well uh Willy hennig's phylogenetic systematics um as it's as it's used today like what is the degree of overlap between that and the actual philosophical framework of the whole the whole you know approach as devised by hennig because hennig wasn't using computers he was only to, to my knowledge i can't pretend to have read all of his works i've read a lot about him but i haven't read his original stuff i'm not that interested in it to be honest not sufficiently interested in the theory of phylogenetics to you know go down that rabbit hole um he was working on arthropods where the uh, characters you could talk about are clearer and more, uh, they're less ambiguous than they are for, you know, whether a bone is long or short. Well, <laughs> what about all the <laughs> intermediates? <laughs> he said, you know, this insect's either got six or seven panels in its wing. You know, they're clearly defined and that kind of stuff. You don't have an insect with six and a half panels on its wings, as far as I know. Um And he, I don't actually know specifically, I know he came up with loads of, terminology like all the terms like synapomorphy or tapomorphy etc but i don't know um what his specific take was on things like paraphyly and whether you had to always have you know is a does a a, a clade by definition is monophyletic but does every clade have to include I, I don't know exactly what his take was on 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 paraphyly whether he permitted yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, I guess what I was just saying, because Willie Hennig's philosophy, um, I don't know, uh, as I've 
read a little bit by him, but he's he's a bit of a tedious writer, to be honest. Um, yeah. yeah um, but you can clearly separate these things, the methodology from the practice of phylogenetic taxonomy. You don't have to base your groups on monophyletic you can Well, you don't... Yeah, you, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say that um, it's wrong to say that a hand-cranked analysis of 20 characters and 10 taxa done in 1984 is not under Hennigian principles and, phyl- and phil- philosophy because it, it totally 100% was. It's just that it wasn't obviously... Uh, you know, you, you, you can't, Sorry, can't. I wasn't arguing that. Uh, no, no, no. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't mean. I didn't mean you were arguing that. I mean for for people like Alan Charig to say that we've learnt. He he published a paper where in the late eighties about Arxal systematics, where he literally says we have learnt nothing because these new cladograms are depicting. You know, he says he says basically if you take a uh, like a, a phylogram, you know, sort of a, 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 a family tree with curved lines from 1956 by Roma or, or whatever. He says that if you turn that into a sterile cladogram, the relationships are exactly the same as those of like, a, you know, Gautier 1986 or, or um, um, whatever. I, I think this was fundamentally missing the point that that what was just getting started in the 80s, okay, people couldn't predict the future. They couldn't predict like the the fact that we would have everyone would have desktop computers where they can, you know, within minutes run um, uh, data sets of like, you know, like hundreds of containing hundreds of taxa and fa- literally thousands of character statements. People didn't know they were going to go that way. But C- it certain, wasn't certainly by to... the late 80s, anyone with a brain knew that this was this was coming. Computing had been drastically improving. Up until then, yeah, okay, maybe not how well it would go, but I think anyone could see that computers were going to get a hell of a lot more powerful, and that way more relevant, um, bigger character sets could be done by computers. I don't think anyone in the mid to late eighties who was approaching this without an agenda to grind <laughs> would think that this wasn't coming, right? And to willfully miss well, yeah. that point, I think, would be a bit. Hmm. Sorry, to miss that point, would, well, that's, that's, I, it's hard to interpret as anything but willful. There are, uh, you know, sort of philosophy-based papers that respond to claims like Charig's and say, no, you're just fundamentally missing the point because it's not about the shape of the tree. We're not necessarily saying that everyone that went before us is wrong. We're saying that, you know, identifying clades and um, talking about, you know, monopoly and what it actually means for, you know, what difference this makes in terms of our understanding is is all is all good stuff you know this is not you, you can't say that we shouldn't be doing that but i'd be interested to know and I, I can't recall any if there are specific statements where people say in 1986 or whatever they say don't forget this this is the start of this uh where i mean i mean today it's you know we say it all the time the fact that the fact that there are now people routinely doing things of all kinds where, oops, I've accidentally created a file that's a terabyte. <laughs> or, or that, and, and people talk about yeah, the, the uh, saltation in computing power and storage power. It's like, you know, it's the e- exponential rise, I think, means that we're due, you know, within the next 20 years to... I Do you know this? Do you know the size of storage that people are predicting within the next 20 years? I mean, it's... You can't. You can't. Probably can't even imagine what terminology they're going to use because it's although, going to be way beyond. Although, although a lot of these things have um, considerably slowed over the last five, ten years. 
um, considerably slowed. Yes, the um, D- doesn't the growth of uh, processing power and storage too, I believe, has slowed down. We're hitting um, the okay. limit, limits of physics. Um, okay, so, that's interesting. Right. Yeah. Moore's, okay. Well, Moore's okay, law, well, that, which that's... was famous for the process, basically translated as the processing power of computers doubles every eighteen months, has right has just completely broken down. It's more like four or five years now. <laughs> is that because it reached its, you know, like basically its peak and then is starting to plateau or something? Or yeah, so obviously chips are still getting faster, but. Um, yeah. yeah, so the the smallest parts of the chips are starting to run into very difficult to account for quantum effects and stuff, you know. So just lit- literally having wires so small they can't carry current anymore, essentially, I think is what's going on. I'm no physicist. Don't ask me, really. But yeah, something like that. So the, the, we're, we're hitting the fundamental size limits of how small you can right. do things. yeah. Well, that doesn't go against the point I wanted to make there anyway, which is that... Um, <laughs> so, well, it, well, like, no, no. So, if you go, again, go back to, like, go back to the 80s. So, that's before... That's when you're in the start of the, you know, computer uh, and technological revolution in terms of, you know, in, increasing computing power and storage size. Um it, it would still okay. It would have been obvious. You just said it. It would have been obvious by the late eighties that um, there's there's a lot due to due to happen real soon in terms of you know data sets and what our computers are going to be able to do. Yeah. I would like to know if there's anybody who actually says <laughs> at that time, in contradiction to naysayers like Charig, if they did say, "Don't forget, we're just at the start here." And if you think that if you think that dealing I think there's one paper where he's criticizing it's very common to criticize the terminology that people use in phylogenetic papers because it's it's you know people did go through a phase of slapping new names on every new node as if it's like you know a new thing they find in the cladogram is worthy of a name which is you know silly silly idea because we know how labile cladograms are but um yeah the the criticism of there's too many characters it's like are you kidding it's like we've using a hundred characters to analyze very complicated objects animals are quite complicated lots of components that we're just getting started it's like you know do you not see that within 20 30 40 years i still think i've said this in print a couple of times this is sorry this is going up another slight tangent is that um when people talk about oh I scoured the skeletons of these animals and I was able to get 37 characters out, <laughs> out of it. It's like, are you having a laugh? It's like, you can get 37 codable, you know, variable features in the tongue of <laughs> bats or whatever. It's like, it's not difficult to build up character sets of literally thousands. I was distressed in work I did on pterosaurs to find, uh, and again, I think we've covered this on the podcast way back, um, that for the pterosaur pelvis, if you go through all the pterosaur uh, character sets, they variously use zero, one, or two characters from the pelvis. You don't have to be an expert on pterosaurs or an expert (laughs) on the pterosaur pelvis to look at a pelvic girdle and think, I think there's like three or four like lumpy bits that are kind of different between the different pterosaurs. 
And there's at sure least enough, three there. <laughs> there's at least three. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's over. There's clearly there's clearly over thirty if you're just you know trying to be relatively lazy about it. And um, yeah, it's like, are you kidding? There's so much information that we certainly you can't, certainly can't account for just doing it in your head. You can't keep track of these things. It's just it's just impossible. I used to feel ashamed that if someone said to you, "What is what is the condition of the of meta metatarsal two in whatever taxon?" And it's like, ooh, I actually don't remember. You know, should I remember that stuff? Now I'm like, who the hell can keep all that stuff in their head? And that you is... might know one or two. Yeah, uh, that is, I think, go on, go a on. sign that it's working. That's the strength of it. It's meant to be take your. <laughs> It's not for humans to do, right? It's meant to be an incredibly yeah. uh, fine-grained statistical sampling of something, not something that you remember. <laughs> you shouldn't really remember what characters unite something and something, because, one, they could be wrong, right? Um, and they could be different characters. Uh, it'll turn out in the next analysis, right? Um, the Yeah, I think the, the point of the cladistic analysis working is that you don't understand <laughs> you don't you don't you don't keep it all in your head you're not meant to it's true it's uh it's it's meant to be below your notice in some ways takes the subjectivity out of it mm. well let's end that there because oh my god that was uh i don't know if that would be at all interesting or it's worthy good. i think it's good i i just don't know whether things are boring or tedious or, or not so uh um, so if you listened to this and liked it, you know, give us encouragement. If you didn't like it, just keep it yourself. I don't really care what you think anyway. <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. We won't, but please we give us, please continue to give us money. Well, yeah. Um, okay, so we don't do cash for questions, but I guess if there's stuff that people... I'm always nervous about saying if there's stuff you want us to talk about because then people ask us about stuff that I'm not really interested in talking about. But certainly if it overlaps with our area of expertise. And I would say that this is quite niche because... Um, there are obviously quite a few pretty good podcasts that cover dinosaurs and some YouTube channels as well that, that do it, you know, with pictures, which is even better than, than podcasts. But, um, yeah, people actually talking about this, this like, uh, fairly deep dive into some of the science things. I, who, who knows? I don't know. I mean, we've got 10 point, let's check, 10.7 uh, million <laughs> listeners. So uh, I guess we're doing something right. Um, but yeah, let's stop it there, um, and let's think about something to talk about next time. It was an unusual week, oh, well, unusual because it's only a week since we did the last one, and uh, as we said at the start, nothing. I haven't got anything <laughs> special to report, really. <laughs> I might have next week, might not. All right. Yeah. Okay. Let's wrap it up. Um, are you on the internet? I am. John? I am the John Conway on Twitter. My web website is johnconway.art. Um, where I post exclusively pictures of sauropods now. <laughs> um, so if you like anything but sauropods, <laughs> you're out of luck. <laughs> you're out of luck. <laughs> All did right. I show you, did I show you this Liza Wikia toy? Oh, that's very nice. It's pretty cool. I call it King Potato. It's yeah. a it's a giant. Do you, want, do you want to describe it for our listeners? Uh, well, this is specifically relevant to this should be in follow up because uh, I don't know how many episodes ago, but we were asked, it might have been a cash for question. We were asked, why are there no giant animals in the Triassic? And um, 
we sort of I can't remember what we said. I think I think we said, well, it just so happens, you know, animals they're not infinitely plastic. They don't all just like keep evolving infinitely. It's uh there do seem to be some sort of steel ceilings or glass ceilings, whatever, in terms of sizes and shapes. And for whatever reason, animals like Dicynodonts and yada 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 didn't get beyond certain sizes and then Liza Wikia was published this gigantic po- um, Polish Dicynodon uh, it's an animal that's uh, about the same I've got a bunch of Asian elephants here they're about to scale it's about the same size as like a small Asian elephant it's massive it's like two meters tall at the top of the back or something um, so that kind of nullifies <laughs> what we were saying it looks about. really bulky too so it'd probably it's... be super heavy it's pretty chunky. I think it's meant to be somewhere around about a ton. Um, more than, no, no, no. It'd be more than that, too, at least. I'm doing again, doing that off the top that. of my head. Yeah. Something like that. So and and so yes, uh, collector uh, made this toy last year. It's really you, nice, isn't it? It's good, isn't it? You can purchase it from Everything Dinosaur, who are brilliant. Um, sorry, that was a total tangent. I don't have, I can't find the script to the Empire Strikes Back because uh, I can't, I can't, uh, I can't close the show really. Um, I was moving house, so everything went into storage, and then this, then there was this event you might have heard of called COVID nineteen or something, and uh, all of our plans, you know, were ruined, and um, so we had to like not move house and get everything back out of storage. So things are sort of still chaotic here. Uh, anyway, I am on the Twitter at... at Tetzoo. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't think of anything. And I blog at Tetzoology, which is tetzoo.com. It's hosted at the same place as the podcast you're listening to now. Um, and... Uh... I spoke about my museum thing last year, didn't I? Yep. Uh, yeah. Uh, last last episode. Yep, last year. Yeah. All right, so we'll end the show there. Bye. Bye now. Bye. <laughs>